everybody. We are again back at the Merad Economics Podcast, and this is the first episode of the semester. I'm Saren Karakasu. We are here with Professor David Just. Hello. And we also have our new two grad students, Lin Qiu mm-hmm. and uh, Yu Dong Rao. And also today we have a special guest star uh, called Prankur Gupta. He is a second year MS student in Cornell and he is working on development economics specifically, right? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so today we'll talk about the behavioral dimensions of security. And before we start, I would start with asking Prankur, defining food security maybe? Is okay. Yeah, but perhaps just what is, for most okay. listeners, they don't necessarily know what food security means so what, what what is food security so food security in effect is just the uh, uh, so everyone has the availability and access to food both economically and physically to lead a socially healthy and like just socially acceptable and healthy life so whatever is acceptable to them in terms of food resources nutrition wise and calorie wise so taking care of hunger and nutrition so it's it's purely about just having access to the food that you need is is um Does this also include food safety issues or, or things of that nature? I mean, it does, in a sense, because it's a physical and economic access to food. So you should be able to get the food supply as well and like have it in your... Uh, so availability of food in the sense yeah. that you should be able to consume it at the end of the day. I guess there's three main elements, right? Food access, food availability, and food utilization. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, I should be able to use it. Okay. So... So how, like that, let's start like um, about with the uh, uh, National Food Security Act, which you worked on, uh, right, Prankur, in right. India. So can you please explain what National Food Security Act is and why is it important for Indian food security issues in general? So the National Food Security Act was passed in 2013 in India, so it's a very recent act. India has had a bunch of social welfare schemes around food security, uh, public distribution system for one, which was involved with uh, getting food grains at cheaper prices, at subsidized prices to below poverty line households. Then the midday meal schemes, which was about getting children free lunches in their schools, mostly government schools. So most of these children came from below poverty line households and in the rural areas. Then the integrated child development scheme which is for prenatal and postnatal care of women and the Anganwari programs which is about infant uh, health monitoring and infant so basically any sort of supplements that they would need and to ensure that the initial growth is really important because as we understand in nutrition the first 10 months or so or for the first six months are really important for child growth again yeah. India has been grappling with stunting and wasting issues I think it's the um, it's home to the largest number of children who are undernourished. I think 50% of the children in India are sort of malnourished. It's not a rate. It's not the highest rate. It's the it's highest the high, number. It's the highest so, number. Yeah, yeah, right. India is giant. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <Okay. laughs> so, <laughs> right. So so that's what uh, one of the biggest problems was. And the National Food Security Act was supposed to address all of these together, bring them under one central ambit so that they can be a committee to monitor them. And with India, though, the thing acts are central, but they're implemented by states. So they can have varying implementation in the sense that one state could choose to provide milk in midday meal schemes while the other state could choose to provide fresh fruit. And this, on all of this is not necessarily governed by the central scheme. The central scheme has few uh, aspects. Mm-hmm. So the National Food Security Act seek to also sort of... Um, make some of these things consistent. For ex- for instance, the prices of food grains that were to be provided under the public distribution system, the identification of households, the criteria for identification of those households. Those are under central scheme, right? Yeah, those are all under the central scheme. But again, once it gets to the state, effectively, it's the state's 
legislative responsibility to implement it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they can add or alter few of the indicators and it's it sort of starts getting complicated right then. And that's where identification issues and corruption <laughs> issues and everything comes up. Oh, okay. So corruption and, and I, I was about to ask, so are, are there are there places that are implementing this in ways that are, are just drastically different from... Right. They are. They are. In fact, one of the main things that differentiates is at currently, and, and this has been a major problem, is of identification. And first, there is identification which is based on criteria, but the criteria are assessed by local authorities, mm-hmm. which is mostly the village head. And uh, so we have local village elections. So whoever gets elected, it is his responsibility, his or her responsibility to make a list of people who are entitled or eligible mm-hmm. under the scheme. And then mm-hmm. they pass it on. So you can obviously imagine <laughs> the kind of political corruption that would happen and a few states. Now, every state is supposed to have grievance redressal mechanism yeah. so that people who get left out or who get cheated against can have, you know, their say at least someplace. But mm-hmm. in the last analysis that we did in, um, I think last year in 2016, when we were out there on the field, and one of the states we observed there were no grievance redressal mechanism systems. And this is four years after implementation of the act oh. that a state has failed to set up a grievance redressal mechanism. It, it really funny things came across when we spoke to bureaucrats who didn't even realize that they were the ones who were in charge of the grievance redressal mechanism. One of the, for instance, I remember this instance when uh, we had a public meeting with people and one of the person who was responsible, the food officer, we were asking questions about the grievance redressal mechanism and he went up in arms. He was almost, you know, against the government. He was like, you know, the government doesn't set up the grievance redressal mechanism system. We are supposed to have a person who's responsible for it, an officer who has in charge of all these complaints. And then we just pointed out, sir, you are that officer. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> I think that's when that's when uh, the resources are extremely concentrated for for one area. Then the power can uh, get corrupted, or right. yeah, a lot of things can happen during the process. Right. So, thinking about like the stable grain prices, why do you think that like stable stabilizing grain prices are important for especially the food security? And can we relate to that? Relate that to loss aversion? the term that we have in behavioral economics. What do you think, David? Price stabilization of, of, you know, of foods, and particularly staples, is a really interesting area mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. I guess I come at this looking at, you know, from my training, looking at the example of the U.S. when there was this mm-hmm. big push to stabilize prices back in, uh, like, the 20s and 30s and, and beyond, you know, around those, those times. Uh, a lot of it centering around the, the Great Depression, but a lot of it was motivated not by the consumers, motivated by the yes. farmer, wanting to make sure they had high enough prices so that they could, you know, maintain income. It was just sort of interesting because it, you actually have a whole bunch of studies that show that farmers prefer more risk in the U.S., um, and, and we, we tend to try and disregard those because they seem strange <laughs> to us, right? Mm-hmm. But there, there's actually fairly reasonable evidence that that might be the case, that they prefer this risk. Nonetheless, we're arguing for this stabilized prices. <laughs> How do you sort of square that, right? And really what seems to be happening is they're arguing stabilized prices, and what they're really meaning is high prices. They want oh. high prices, right? And I wonder if some of the same things happen with you know the, these examples more internationally, maybe without the sort of farmer focus, maybe more consumer-based mm-hmm. focus in some cases. But a lot of times I think you can tug on the heartstrings to say we need to have affordable food, 
And then somebody's making a whole bunch of money off of this. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true, which, which is actually very interesting because even with the National Food Security Act and with the public distribution system, the Food Corporation of India procures all these food grains from farmers at a minimum support price. Okay. And uh, they do it under the pretext that, you know, we need all this grain for the public distribution system and we need it to be subsidized. So And then, you know, the majority of the farmers plant all these staples. So we are giving them a basic price for their inputs or whatever they're farming but actually a lot of economic analysis has shown if that is if they were to just let the market be there is so much of production that the prices will go down and they'll go down even, like even lower even than lower than the minimum support price <laughs> a lot lower than the minimum support price now that may seem to be really bad or bad for the farmers in the first instance uh -huh. but the farmers are also the consumers yeah. and the national food security act doesn't provide enough for their consumption so they eventually are buying off the market so if you were to reduce the prices, if you just let them be, then A, they can just buy these grains off the market. They can also probably buy other grains, which are under the minimum support price and because of which the prices are so high. Not every yeah. farmer is planting everything. So we need to understand this dual model of producer-consumer both. A farmer is a producer, but is also a consumer. So a high price may not really be uh, very good for the farm. And then the yeah, stocks, yeah. they're just huge. The stocks that go to waste, eaten by rats most of the time. <laughs> and you just keep stalking because you need to keep the prices up. So it's interesting because it seems to be a pretty regular phenomenon that you see these types of price interventions when the mm -hmm. economists get their hands on them and say, oh, this isn't really doing what you're saying it is. Yeah. yeah, I think there are many political reasons behind it as well. The political perception that, you know, when the government does starts to do a procurement process, they establish a context that, you know, we are providing support to the farmers and mm -hmm. this is to provide cheaper grains. Mm -hmm. Once you start taking that away, there could be political repercussions the, for yeah, it. Yeah, the, the framing of the yeah, issue exactly. is, is what makes us, you can never pull these things right, out right, quite, right? right? I mean, you can't, who can argue, you know, we need to make prices more random. We need to make <laughs> farmers' income really unstable, or we need to we need to make it so you know some people really can't afford the food. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that becomes and, that becomes very problematic, especially in the Indian context. From what I've known, governments have fallen over uh, a price hike of onions. So ten years of good work, <laughs> one month of price rise in onions, and there you go, you're done. <laughs> you pack your bags and you go. Don't touch the onions. <laughs> But like such an announcement about like the price uh, increase would also may lead to like some hoarding behavior too, right? So, what do you think about like those hoarding behavior are generally caused by like we talk about financial speculations maybe, and what do you think about it? So, if you have any sort of speculation that comes in that you know you're going to have great demand for this particular product, the prices are going to rise. Mm -hmm. Everyone just sees this as a big opportunity mm -hmm. to make money, mm -hmm. and it sometimes you may not even hoard. You may just spread a rumor that there is a lack of supply and the prices can just go up artificially, which happened very recently in the case of demonetization when the Indian currency demonetized. All sorts of rumors were flying around because A, the government itself was passing bunch of orders every day. So no one quite m could make sure which ones came from the government and which one were rumors. And at that point of time, salt for one of the days, salt sold at 20 times the price it used to because of just a single rumor that the salt supply has been affected because the informal economy is hit because of no cash and suddenly salt is 20 times the price that it used to be and it's sold. When, when you start talking about hoarding behavior, I mean, I, I guess governments themselves actually act on, on hoarding in a way. They, they increase their stocks um, right. and a lot of times they'll use 
interesting pretext to increase their stocks as, as, as almost a way of getting around uh, free trade agreements and th- mm-hmm. things like that. But you also have individual families and, and households that uh, that start stocking up under very different circumstances. I, I don't know if you put much... I, have you studied this much? Um, much. So I, I've done a little bit of work here looking at, at households in the U.S. that mm-hmm. are food insecure. Mm-hmm. And you get this difference in the amount they, they try to hoard. Now, hoarding is maybe not quite the right word right Mm -hmm. but if you have if you have a family and they're facing you know a real food insecurity and they go to a food pantry or they go some other place like that they're likely to buy a lot more than they need or or more per person than would you know a family that didn't have the same sort of food insecurity Uh because they're trying to insure against what's going to happen over the next few weeks, right? Uh-huh. Which which can lead, interestingly, to to waste because a lot of the things they'll right. get are, are going to be perishable or, or or things like that. I one of the things we've been working on actually is is seeing if there are ways we can sort of use that behavior to try and help combat food insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. If, we, if if they're insuring themselves against future bouts of food insecurity or or against you know what happens in the next couple of weeks with foods that are more shelf-stable, then you might reduce the need in the future right. rather than just throwing some food away because they're, they're sort of, you know, they're padding their, their cupboards with what they, you know, what they think they may need. That's very interesting because it makes me wonder how much of this has to do with the fact that if you buy, more, like the economies of scale, if you kind of buy more, you're spending less. So the houses that are food insecure, they may tend to, you know, like, okay, let's just buy 10 pounds of this cheese even though you know that's just gonna go bad (laughs) but you still tend to just calculate that it's probably cheaper to buy so let's just go for it that's a good question i mean i uh there's a bit of a cycle in how they buy and in in the u.s right the the main program to try and deal with food insecurity is is the what used to be called the food stamp program it's now called snap when you get your snap benefit every month some amount of money Mm -hmm. it's loaded up on a card people tend to spend it really fast, mm-hmm. right? Not all of it, but they st- spend at a much higher rate when they first get it. And they buy, um, you know, they buy all their perishables right then. And then as the month goes by and they, they eat through the food they can and some of the perishables go to waste, mm-hmm. you get to the end of the month, they don't have enough to keep buying the perishables. They're buying, you know, the, yeah, they're buying like sort of high calorie dense types things. And, and it's, it sort of shifts what they're, what they're eating towards the end of the the month right right? so uh, some of that might be driven by that that sort of scale issue but i i I think it's more just you know you think differently when oh my gosh i'm almost out of money Mm -hmm. and we're still a couple weeks away from getting this i what can i buy that's just gonna you know help us so we stay full right i I think that that's a really different mindset to be in it's a visceral sort of reaction Mm -hmm. So in this free market, how do you think the government's role to regulate this, like this phenomenon? <laughs> when you say government, there is like a state and like there is a political party that is made of the government. So how do the policies really come into play? That's a actually very interesting behavioral question. How much of eventually when I think about a government, their uh, final goal is to get their political mandate back. Like they want to come back and that is what governs whatever they do. So all the lobbying that holders or traders would be doing. And again, as David just mentioned, you have these ways of getting around the free trade agreements to keep your prices up, to keep importers out or 
to further facilitate exports. So whatever is benefiting the kind of lobby that you see is going to fund your elections or it's going to help you get your mandate back. It's more, I think it's sort of more governed by that than the actual free trade agreements, which are there in place. But again, there are ways to get around them. So. <laughs> when it comes to these sort of acts, I, I, you know, different governments deal differently with this, this issue of, of food insecurity or food mm -hmm. security, I guess, the flip side of it. When you think about India, how much political pull, pull do the, the groups that really need this, this sort of program have? I mean, is, is this program really designed to help them with what they're, they need? Or is this, is it political theater? I mean, uh, most of it, I don't know the answer to that question because it's, if it's a theater, it's so good that it feels free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, so political parties always have had some sort of strong voter-based group. So if a particular political party is, uh, has been made of people who have come out of the villages, they want to ensure that their people in the villages feel secure. So yeah. they would bring in all of these plans and stuff like that. Eventually, you understand that majority of the Indian population is in the villages. It's rural population. And in fact, if we look at the voting percentages, the urban people like me do not really vote. It is <laughs> the people in the villages who are going out there to vote. So yeah. you need to design, at least your policy design has to be in accordance with rural economy and like with uh, the downtrodden and with the left, uh, left behind people. So all of these schemes, in a sense, sometimes you really want to implement them, like just giving the benefit of the doubt, the fact that politicians aren't as bad people as we think them to be. <laughs> they are policymakers yeah. at the end of the day with some constraints. So most of them, they try to do stuff, but at least in terms of development policies, it, it has been pretty consistent with parties. So everyone knows that this is the right thing to do and everyone mm -hmm. tries to do it in their fashion. But some or the other things just keep coming up. For instance, plugging leakages, someone can have a different way of doing it as compared to another party. The current political party wants to have a biometric system of authentication in place to prevent identity thefts, which has actually disrupted the program more than it has helped it. Because, you know, uh, agricultural laborers, you cannot really read their fingerprints that easily. And then you have internet connectivity issues and you cannot have a decentralized system because that would mean giving access of biometric data to this random person and so you need to connect it to a server. You don't have internet connectivity. You have problem of reading. So all of these issues come into place. But yeah, every government has been trying to improve it in some fashion or the other. So do you think it's done its job despite some of the issues with corruption and, and some of the other hiccups? Yeah, design? sure. Uh, at least till three years ago, I could have said that the food security or insecurity issues have been kind of tackled in a very nice way and they've been progressing. A lot more people have started getting the grains that they didn't used to get. Back in the days, you would get your grains once in three months, a monthly grain entitlement, you'd get once in three months. That was the average. That was the kind of corruption <laughs> that you have. So it's like you're getting 30%. So sometimes politicians listen to economists, they hire economists, they get their opinion, they get their opinion from grassroots activists and they start incorporating things. So it, it, it became a lot better. At yeah. least in the last survey that we did, uh, we could see 80 to 90 percent of coverage and, you know, just 10 percent being left out. And even the ones who were getting the grains, there was just minor corruption issues, which you should get out of the way. But as compared to the corruption <laughs> issues that exist, we were very relieved to see that it's working out. Yeah. So the, the benefits are clearly outweighing whatever the... The, the corruption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah, that's interesting. So... Coming to another topic that we can talk about, so how, what do you, like, how do you think we can use behavioral nudges? So I think like, one of the entitlements of the NFSA is to improve like more um, nutritious 
uh, intake of the children, right? Like, so basically um, promote nutritious meals. So how do you think we can use, like, our governments can use behavioral nudges to like, establish that in developing countries? So it's an interesting thing when you start taking this to, to developing countries, because I, I guess for the benefit of our, our those listening, what... What are children in India like? What sorts of foods do they like? And what do they, you know, what, what do they eat? Uh, when I was growing up, we heard this proverb, which literally meant any, you can either eat tasty or healthy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and that's, that's I, I, like having studied a lot of nutrition now and mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, you need to eat salads or stuff like that, greens. <laughs> I still have that perception in mind. So if I need a tasty meal, it's never healthy. So that's mostly how kids in India are. You know, you you would not... Uh, and But but again, when you say kids in India, there's a big difference because India is like... It's huge. You have <laughs> huge and then you have huge amounts of inequality. You have all these uh, American joints opening up, Burger King, Domino's, Pizza Hut, everything <laughs> else coming up. And then at, at the same time... <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then at the same time, you have people who uh, just eat rice. So, but overall, I don't think there is a lot of stress on nutrition, even though there should be. Uh, most people eat rice in uh, the poorer parts of India. In the eastern part of India, rice is the staple diet. And uh, usually it's supposed to be eaten with pulses or lentils. But because pulses and lentils are so expensive, mm-hmm. that the ratio that of rice eaten with pulses, it's, it just keeps increasing. So in the cities, if we would eat, let's say, two parts rice and one part pulses, in the villages, it would be 10 parts rice and one part pulses. Okay. But they also eat a lot more. So I don't know uh, if that really helps. In terms of calorie intake, it's high, but it's usually calorie-dense food that people eat, including Mm -hmm. children in Mm -hmm. rural parts and even to some extent urban parts because eating pizzas and burgers that's just calorie intense food so yeah yeah it sounds like the it's the rural areas where they have uh, where there's sort of the greatest need right because at least in terms of vegetables the access to uh, nutritious food or to fresh food it's very low it's limited mm-hmm. to uh, the people who can grow it yeah. So if I can grow vegetables on my farm, then my family has access to it. If I cannot do that because of whatever reasons, mm-hmm. then my family is sort of cut off because otherwise they're expensive to buy from the market. And eventually it's going to be rice. That's that's what they'll eat. They'll oh. just eat rice, <laughs> breakfast rice, dinner rice, lunch rice. That's all, that's all there is. So I, I, I recently uh, I've been working with a group in, in Africa, which is throw in another culture, if we will, um, and looking at trying to get kids to eat healthier. Um, I, I think the most recent experience I've, I've been looking at is in Nigeria, actually trying to introduce vitamin A into their oh. diet, right? Okay. And, so, and, and to do this, we're trying to get them to eat orange flesh sweet potato, which I'll just call sweet potato because that's mm-hmm. a long name for it. <laughs> but um, so sweet potato is cute. Yeah, so so trying to get them to eat sweet potato, and this particular group um, had never been introduced to sweet potato before, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I've been working with with a group out there who'd been trying to do this for quite a while, and they'd noticed they would introduce it, and some kids would eat it, and some kids wouldn't, and it wasn't, you know, they, they wanted to see what, what more they could do. And so we tried a few things that were sort of similar to here, uh-huh. and some things that were sort of different from what we do here. And we what we found worked was really interesting. So the, perhaps the most successful thing we found, we send this guy into the, the 
elementary schools. I, I guess they're not elementary schools. They're just schools. They actually cover mm-hmm. a wide range of, of ages. But he, send this guy in, and he would he would teach them a song about sweet potatoes uh-huh. and about how eating sweet potatoes is going to make you like super successful in oh, school, really? <laughs> right? It's going to help you academically. And it's just like, you know, like that sweet potato consumption just shoots through the roof in the schools where we have this song. And it's, oh, it's really? I, we actually have a video of it. I, 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 uh, I don't know if I have access to it right now, but it's, <laughs> The song is sort of, it might be misleading. It's more of a chant, ah. <laughs> right? I mean, they're like banging on their desks and they're, they're it almost almost seems like something you would do at a football game, right? Ah. Um, but in any case, it just really, really changed their minds on this. And I got to say, if I was doing this in the U.S., I would never say, eat these these vegetables they're going to make you do better at school because no kid would care (laughs) right i i guess the question then is is you know what what do you think would be the right approach for for this culture yeah that's very interesting because it reminds me of one of these things that the group that i was working with did so uh we have been trying to get eggs as a part of the midday meal scheme but Mm -hmm. of course with the vegetarianism and all the arguments it, it becomes slightly difficult sometimes it becomes a political chaos sometimes yeah. but um, but still we still try and then and this is exactly what we do we like get children in a group and then we make them say this uh, or like this chant or song or whatever about eggs which effectively just means that an egg a day gets malnourishment away <laughs> so it's it's actually more fun in hindi that way because it's about it's it's basically about giving a stick to malnutrition so yeah. once you eat eggs and you get the malnutrition or malnourishment off because it just goes away. So we uh, we try to promote it like that. And kids, they started loving eggs. Kids anyway, I think, do love eggs because uh-huh. I, I hardly meet anyone who doesn't love eggs. But yeah, <laughs> people usually generally love eggs. So kids, they used to. And then with this song, they would just go around the village singing it, saying uh-huh. it. And so it kind of has an impact on the parents as well. They see their kids happy and they kind of start talking to the school teacher that, you know, why don't you just start giving them eggs? And these people from the cities just came in with a bunch of eggs and they fed the kids with eggs and they loved it. You should start doing it. And so yeah. so that way you sort of try to build a public opinion, which becomes, again, a, 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 a sort of a political force. And then yeah. governments try to incorporate that. And it's almost, a, almost a cultural change. Yeah, and, and that's, that's interesting. A lot of these programs specifically look at trying to improve nutrition among kids and getting them into good habits because mm-hmm. they'll, their habits will bleed into parents right. in some way or another. And it's, it's harder to, I mean, schools make for a really easy way to try and make that type of change, right? So I'm not sure if I will give an example of myself. So I'm not sure if it was like a program because it was not. I, I'm not sure if it's something that like governments can implement. So, but when I was a kid, so I grew up in Turkey and like I was not introduced to like sweet potatoes for my family because we were just like eating regular potatoes. And I, I, but the first time that I saw sweet potatoes was in an American cartoon and they were using sweet potatoes. To, so it was a cartoon called Life with Louie. I don't know if you have ever heard about it, whatever. It was something popular when I was a kid. It was something American. <laughs> so I guess it was like, it was taking place in Minnesota or somewhere, but whatever. The first time that I saw sweet potatoes, like, they were using sweet potatoes to protect their house. So basically they were like building sweet potato walls because they were sticky. And like this was just, this was the only scene that I saw, I don't know, probably when I was 12 or 10, I don't know, like so when I was that age. But so I think 
even like since that time, I was always interested in the idea of the sweet potatoes. And when I was like, when I first started like having it in my meals, like when I first uh, faced it, like in some regular context, like there, I, I mean, I still love them. And actually I realized that this is also the case with some other kids in Turkey too. When I talk with, about this with my friends, I guess this was something that's like we saw in TV shows by chance, but it was a popular TV show in Turkey. And that's why when we discuss about it, we all, we all realized we liked sweet potatoes because the first time that we saw was that like that TV show. And I mean, yeah, of course you cannot implement that directly, but it is something like proof of that, like this is really effective in some way. But yeah, I mean, it's similar to the, the US effect, right? In the... In the war years, mm. um, they did some surveys of kids asking them what their favorite meals were, their favorite foods were, right? Uh, ice cream, of course, ranked top. But <laughs> really close in there was spinach, right? Because oh, of, right. of oh, Popeye. Oh, Popeye. Yeah. And it's, it, it had been played such a central role in this popular cartoon that yeah. they uh, they got excited yeah. about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, today that was definitely an exi- uh, interesting discussion. We learned about, like, um, the... In India a lot and the food security issues about uh, mm-hmm. there and also yeah we discussed about some behavioral dimensions of global food policies too so yeah so now uh, we're coming to the end uh, we're again with David Prankor thanks Elaine and Yurong and also thanks to Liam too <laughs> so see you next time <laughs>